When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program. The secret to visibly firmer, summer-ready skin is here. Osea's number one best-selling Andaria Algae Body Oil. Clinically proven to instantly improve skin elasticity and transform dull, dry skin to silky, soft, and unbelievably glowing. Rich yet never greasy, Andaria Algae Body Oil is formulated with sustainably sourced seaweed to help replenish the skin's moisture barrier and seven nourishing active botanical oils for results you can see and feel all over. The best part? It's signature scent. A blend of freshly squeezed grapefruit, cypress, and mango mandarin transports you to sun-kissed summer days. This all-natural scent is unforgettable. Everything Osea makes is clean, vegan, cruelty-free, and climate-neutral certified, so you never have to choose between your values and your best skin. Get healthy, glowing skin for summer with clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order site-wide with code GLOW at oseamalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A Malibu.com code GLOW. Welcome to this episode of Gone Medieval. I'm Matt Lewis. Welsh poets have for a long time been an overlooked source for historical study. Their importance to the study of the Wars of the Roses, my specific area of interest, has only just begun to be understood. There was a thriving bardic tradition, and one poet in particular is fascinating. Gwerville Machain lived in the second half of the 15th century and, as a female poet, left a body of work that deals less with history and more with social concerns. She's rude, she's irreverent and unafraid to tackle serious issues. She also features in a brand new book, A Map of Love by Wynne Thomas. And Wynne joins us today to tell us more. It's great to have you here on Gone Medieval, Wynne. Well, thank you for the opportunity. It's a pleasure. Can you paint a picture for us of the Welsh bardic scene in the late medieval period? Was it something that was flourishing or was it beginning to wane? Something dramatic had happened. The bards became a sort of a guild of poets initially serving the princes and the earliest bardic poetry, as it's known in English, dates back to roughly the 7th century, shortly after the Romans left Wales, and then a new language was forged out of the combination of the basic Celtic language and then some admixture of Latin. So Cymraeg, Welsh, came into existence. The language had a newness about it that poets could exploit, and the first poets, believe it or not, bards, actually worked not in Wales, but in what was known as the Hain Ogleth, the Old North. And that meant the region around Edinburgh, because, of course, people who became the Welsh were originally a Brythonic British people, and they occupied much of the island of Britain. And the two great poets, which are regarded as the founding of the Bardic Order, therefore, are Anairin and Taliesin. And over the centuries that followed, the sort of poetry that they wrote, which was very much in keeping with the Welsh language, which is a very flexible language in terms of sounds, 
that began to regularise as a particular writing which involved elaborate patterns of assonance and alliteration within a line. Now, it lasted, what, 700 years, because it lasted in 1282, and that is a change. 1282. No Welsh person should be unaware of what that date means. Do you know what it means? I was filming at Conway Castle last week, talking all about what happened in Wales around this time, so I'm very well aware of it. (laughs) But just in case anyone isn't, we're talking about Edward I's invasion and eventual conquering of Wales. That was the date when the last native prince of Wales was killed by Edward I. Now, the princes, they had been the employers of the bards because the bards were court poets primarily and therefore an important part of their duty was to sing the praises of their patron. And 1282 comes and that is the end of that world because there are no princes anymore and therefore there is no place for the bard. And one of the great poems in Welsh was written, in fact, as an elegy. And it starts by evoking an apocalyptic scene, because it wasn't just the end of a local order for the bard, it was the end of the world, really. So there was that extraordinary change, when suddenly they had no raison d'etre. They had been the custodians of a people, really, because they were also charged with conveying legend and law and tradition from one generation to another. All that had come to an end. But the bards reinvented themselves... And with that, they interestingly changed what it became, in fact, a rather ritualistic and arcane mode of writing. I mean, some great writing resulted, but it's not easy to read because it's foreign to us today, the whole manner and mode of it. It was an in-group writing for the princes, but that couldn't last. So they evolved a new kind of writing, which compared with the old was simpler. It was much more mobile, much more colloquial, much more flexible, and that served them well because they had to find new patrons just to keep them going. They needed to live and they needed to maintain the body tradition. And found that in the remnants, really, of the great families of Wales. They weren't great aristocracy, but they had houses sufficient size and they had sufficient wealth to maintain the poets as long as the poets travelled all around the country from one great house to another. And now, of course, adapting their singing to these new conditions. And the monasteries, too, were a very important source of particularly the Cistercians. The Cistercians were originally from France, brought over by the Normans, and they went native. And the Cistercians have contributed enormously to the culture of Wales, not least by maintaining it at this difficult period. So a new form emerges called the Cowydd, which is a simplified form of the older poetry. And the great master, who, if he didn't devise it, certainly developed it to an extraordinary height of greatness, was David Ap Willem. And he's arguably the greatest poet Wales has ever produced. And he lived in the 14th century, for a century before Guerville Michan. And it was he and his contemporaries who practiced this new kind of nimble writing, which was an interesting writing because David William, in a sense, he had to ride two horses. On the one hand, you had the occupying force of the Anglo-Normans, and in fact, his own relatives had got over to that side, and some of them were constables of Cardigan Castle. But at the same time, David was going from great house to great house and linking up with what remained of the old warrior leadership of Wales. So he had to be nimble in all sorts of ways, culturally, linguistically. He was moving between worlds all the time. And you see this in the flexibility of his poetry. So that's the tradition of the bards and where it was at when Guerville Mechain came upon the scene, because that new kind of bardic poetry was in its heyday. It's one of the golden ages, in fact, of Welsh poetry, 
and arguably one of the golden ages of European poetry and culture, actually, which lasted roughly from the 14th century to the early Tudor period. It's fascinating that you can see them developing and reacting to political developments. They're adapting their language, they're adapting their way of operating. So when the princes are gone, they become much more mobile. Who were the bards? What was their kind of background? Did it tend to be a poor man's game or did you have to be educated to some degree? If you go back in the histories of most people, there always have been tribal poets, that is the poets whose responsibility was to serve the tribe. And more often than not, these have been greatly honoured. That was particularly true of Celtic society. And you've got to remember that Welsh society was and is a Celtic society. By now, Wales is about as the only country in the world where a Celtic language is still spoken and maintains an extraordinary, modern, vibrant culture. And the bardic tradition is part of that, even in present-day Wales. But the bards were a guild of prestige poets who were accorded places of honour within the court. Formally, in the laws, they're acknowledged to have a position within the household, which is very high, particularly if they were the highly skilled ones, because the bards, in the end, they evolved a system, as in Ireland, where you had to be apprenticed to the bardic craft for years. And then you had to sit examinations, and then you were formally admitted to what you might say a monopoly, a guild. And once you were in there, there was further chance for competitions. And if you were very successful, you could become a privarth, which means a main poet or a chief poet. And that would allow you to become, for example, either a barth or a barth tile. So there were grades, and that depended on your relationship in the sense of the prince. And the bards were not only trained for years in this extraordinary and unique kind of writing, which is Nordskankhanez, and the body of work that relies on it is called Bardas Bard, in Welsh is poet, and in English, bard. Not only were the laws of the game taught you, so to speak, in what is a kind of bardic school, but also you were taught the traditions of your people, the legend, and the law, and not infrequently too, of course, among the many conventions that you then paraded, there was prophetic verse, and when the Anglo-Normans, the English, came along, that proved very difficult for them, because the bard, through prophecy, began to enter the political sphere. And more often than not, they chose to prophesy not what the English wanted to hear, but an alternative version of the future. And so you've got no wonder that the very word bard entered popular English vocabulary in 1757, because that was the date of Thomas Gray, the Oxford Don's poem, The Bard. And Gray knew it was a legend and not history, but it is the bard, perched high on a crag with his harp, who is hurling down curses on Edward I, who is supposed to have commanded the slaughter of the Welsh bards. Now, it didn't happen. But it's a wonderful story, and Gray makes much of it in a poem which then was heavily illustrated. And, by the way, it reached such fame that most people in Hungary have heard of the Welsh Bards, because the greatest patriotic poem in Magyar is about that. Bards did indeed maintain the identity of a whole people, and that's why in Wales poetry has always had a very special place. Until recently, we had no Seneth of our own, right? We had no, as it were, system of home rule since the time of, so well, in the last 1282 at least, and we haven't had our own separate law courts. We've had nothing like that. And so the maintenance of Welsh identity, which is dependent a lot upon the transmission of tradition, and of language, and of culture, that has come down to the bards. Before we get on to Gwyville herself, what do we know about female poets and bards during this period? Do we know if they were as well represented as men or how they were regarded by their peers? First of all, to note, they were excluded from the Guild of Bards, which is a male preserve. 
there were women poets in Wales who, in fact, were adept at these strict meters. In other words, exactly the skills that the bards were skillful at. They were almost all of high social standing because they needed to be. The bards themselves were high social standing anyway. And they were all certainly taught their skills by male bards. And Gwedwyn Mechain is one of these, but there's very little of their poetry extant. And maybe that is for cultural reasons, the way that women were regarded at that time, and sadly even later, to be honest. I think we can reliably say that she lived in the later 15th century and that she was a married woman of good family in Montgomeryshire and that she had one daughter, we think, and that she may have been taught the bardic skills and arts by a male whom she frequently addresses in her poetry and who may possibly have been her lover, but I think that's speculation, but the whole tone of some of the writing at least leads us to suspect that. There isn't much more we know of it, except that there is a slim body of work that she left. And believe it or not, 95% of that is religious. And most of her poetry is quite conventional. It's verse, pious verse, devout verse. Then, of course, you've got the more little ribald <laughs> bits and pieces, <laughs> including what I call the vagina monologue that she wrote which is a glorious piece of poetry. And she wrote a scatological poem as well, by the way, about her maid defecating. So she was, I suppose we would use the term Rabelaisian these days, wouldn't we? But ribald, if you like. Listeners will be aware of the wife of Bath of Chaucer. And there's something of the wife of Bath, obviously, about Gwerwin Mechain. There was the same kind of robust and hearty love of life, of the body, things physical as well as spiritual. And she wasn't apparently afraid of saying so. And that comes through in her writing. But that's about as much as we know about her, apart from men knowing, of course, that she was effectively censored. She was edited out of the record. So her poem to the vagina, which you mentioned there, kind of referred to as a vagina monologue, is probably her best known work now, at least. But why was it forgotten for so long? Was it because it was buried, it was censured? Why do you think? It was the obvious reason, wasn't it? You should have heard at least of Chapel Wales. 19th century Wales was completely chapel, right? Not church, chapel. And there was always a Puritan streak. And they certainly didn't like anything obscene. Gracious me, come on. Of course, then, when the great editors of the 20th century got to work on these texts in Wales, they were the product of that background. And they might be sophisticated. They might know in theory about all this, but blow me, they weren't going to, <laughs> to edit it or in any way to acknowledge it. And so it was, it must have been the 1980s, before Guerville Mechan really came to light. And since then, of course, great interest has been shown. But that's why it's quite simple, really, and sad in a way. And it's so nice now that she gets a hearing for the first time. She's very much unpolished, you might say, not just of her own period, but as we hear, of course, of her own time. I'm Professor Susanna Lipscomb, and on my podcast, not just the Tudors from History Hit, I try to make sense of everything that baffled our early modern ancestors. Like, what do you do with your waist? If you put your dunghill up against your neighbour's wall, you're going to cause rising damp. Would Henry VIII ever consider executing his wife, the Queen of England, Anne Boleyn? I'm not even sure if the Boleyns took it seriously, because why would they have any reason to suspect Henry VIII would really get rid of his queen? And why do men grow beards? During puberty, the male body heats up and a smoke rises in the body, pushes out the hair in the face. So the beard is actually a form of excrement. 
In other words, not just the Tudors, but most definitely also the Tudors. Twice a week, every week. Listen and follow on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. It's quite amusing to think of all of those as you say, chapel, 19th and 20th century Welshmen sort of picking up this poem and reading it and the look of utter shock and disgust on their faces. I imagine that would make Guerful laugh, if anything. So this specific poem, what is it talking about? What message is it delivering? One of the other conventions of Bodyput, as you'd expect, was poetry addressed to women. That is, praising the beauty of women. And it was full of praise of women, which, as he says in the beginning, is great stuff, boys, but it does stop at the waist, doesn't it? And she then goes on to say, what's really interesting, let me tell you, is what happens below the waist. And you don't seem to pay any attention to that. But through, in fact, a praise poem, which is what it is, of her genital organs. That's what she's doing. And the context of it is games the bards like to play. Because it was this closed order and a closed shop, there was an in-group of bards. And always, from the earliest times, there were exchanges, little unofficial competitions and so on, trying to demonstrate their powers. So she's also making fun of the convention of praise poetry. She's making fun of limits within which male poets operate. And she's effectively saying, do better than that, and let me show you. I thought it was playful, definitely. But it was also, I think, aimed at shocking a male audience to some extent by talking about the fact that, you know, you talk about beautiful eyes and lovely hair and everything else but you never talk about this in a way that would make men's jaws drop. Yeah, yeah. I think I should read a bit of it. I mean, you're welcome to read it all, Win, if you want to. I'm sure people would love to hear you <laughs> recite sure? it. Sure? Go for it. Go for it. Oh, this, by the way, is a translation by Katie Gramich, an old friend of mine. But OK, this is the way that it goes. Every poet, drunken fool, thinks he is just the king of cool. Everyone is such a bore, he makes me sick. And he always declaims fruitless praise of all the girls in his male gaze. He's at it all day long, by God. Ignoring the best bit, silly sod. He places the hair, gown of fine love, and all the girls' bits up above. Even lower down, he praises merrily the eyes, which glance so sexily, bearing more. 
He lords the lovely shape of his soft breasts, which leave him agape, and the beauty's arms, bright drape, even her perfect hands do not escape. Then, with his finest magic, before nightfall, it's tragic. He pays homage to God's might, an empty eulogy, it's not quite right, for he's left the girl the middle, untraced, that place where children are conceived. Through all bright quim he does not sing, that tender, plump, pulsating, broken ring, that's the place I love, the place I bless, the hidden quim beneath the dress. You female body, you're strong and fair, a faultless fleshy coat plumed with hair, I proclaim that the quim is fine, circle of broad-edged lips divine, a cant there by a lavish arse, table of song with its double in red, and the churchmen all the radiant saints, when they get a chance they've no restraint, they never miss their chance to steal by Saint Bino to give it a good feel. So I hope you feel well and truly told off, all you proud male poets who dare not scoff, let songs of the quim grow and thrive find their due reward and survive, for it is silky soft, the sultan of an ode, a little seam, a curtain, on a niche bestowed, neat flaps in a place of meeting, the sour grove, circle of greeting, superb forest, faultless gift to squeeze, fur for a fine pair of balls, tender trees, dingle, deeper than hand or ladle, hedge, to hold a penis as large as you're able, a girl's thick glade, it is full of love, lovely bush. You are blessed by God above. And at the end there, if you notice, there's a run of conceits, that is, of comparisons. In Welsh, this one was the valley, the valley. And that was a central part of what the bards did. And I should have said, at the end, she talks about fine pair of boars and so on, the whole of penis. You've got to remember that the bardic poets used to write poems praising their penis. Down with that, William did, which is also the way edited out of the standard edition for the same reason. So she's writing in a context where the bars themselves, in fact, had written sexy poetry, but she wants to have the women's point of view. That's what you get, isn't it? It's just fascinating. As you say, you know, she's almost reflecting the male poetry that they write. And yet it somehow comes across as more shocking because it's a woman doing it, I guess because we're less used to a woman doing it. What do you imagine her listeners would have thought when they heard this? How do you imagine they would have reacted as she read this poem out? I don't know. But they wouldn't have reacted as we do, would they? Because I don't think they'd have been shocked. <laughs> I don't think really. Just think of Chaucer. And the word quim, by the way, is from Chaucer. Away. That was one of the words used in that time. One or two of them might be offended, not by the obscenity of it, but the fact that she dares to invade their preserve. I should also say, I suppose, that I'm not a scholar. The scholars would tell you Hervilles and Hanev isn't perfect, okay? It's not up to the very high standards that the greatest of the bards would have set. Who the hell cares? I don't care. And I'm not sure that her contemporaries would have cared very much. Most of them would have taken it in good fun, would have risen to the bait reel and might have replied in kind for all we know. I imagine something like this being not dissimilar to a modern rap battle. You know, it's people standing up, they're saying things, maybe partly off the cuff, maybe pre-prepared, but it's all aimed at rivalry, who can produce the best poem, who can do it in the best possible way. Yeah, and she goes over the top. That's the whole point of it, isn't it? There's a showing off not just of her genital organs, but of her prowess, her skills. A female poet who has created, a, today we talk, it was a feminised discourse. 
which is very fashionable 20, 30 years ago, the theory of how women necessarily wrote differently from men. I know that's true or not, but you can see there, you could read Beryl Mecha as attempting to create a distinctively female discourse, not just of subject matter, but of manner of writing. I think there'd be interesting work to be done on her. They also tell me, by the way, the scholars, that you can get something similar on the continent as well, at the same time, going on. So I'm not claiming that what we've just heard is absolutely unique in any way, but it's certainly startling still to us. And to this day, there's been nothing written or being written in Welsh, even by women. And women poets have come to the fore in the last 30, 40 years. And I was going to ask to kind of end on, how do you think Guerville's poetry still speaks to us today? But I guess maybe it's part of that feminist tradition and writing. Is that the main thing that we can take from it? That, you know, even 600 years ago, women were doing what men did in a challenging way. Yeah, if you like, we encounter her as a liberated woman, don't we? After all, she was tied into marriage, wasn't she, etc. And as far as I know, she lived a perfectly conventional life, if you include even the thinking of love as possibly as part of that, certainly in her day. But she comes across to us as an electrifying voice, it seems to me, because this is the voice of a woman. You can't doubt that. Something about it which immediately convinces you of that, even before you're told that she is, you know. So, for me, it makes sense. I'm no wonder this is interested in these days. And, of course, I have to admit that being naughty, a map of love to explain is his collection of poems up to only 12, with little commentaries by me. And it's aimed at a popular market. That's the whole point of it. And it ranges from that sort of poetry we've just been hearing to very moving poem by Emmett Humphreys, written when he was 100 years old, tribute to his wife. There's a gay poem there. There's a poem of a love of mother for child, of a husband for a pregnant wife. So by map of love, I was trying to give some suggestion of the range of uses to which we put the word love and the range of experiences that we associated with that or identified through that word. And therefore, Gwerville Mechan fits into that, right? That she is the most powerful sexual voice in the whole volume. And it is the sexuality of a woman that is speaking through her. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Wynne. I've really enjoyed talking about the bardic tradition and about Gwerville in particular. It's been fascinating to learn more. My pleasure. And thank you for the opportunity. You can buy Wynne's book, A Map of Love, now. It explores 12 poems and poets from Wales over the centuries and is available from University of Wales Press. You can join Dr Kat Jarman on Tuesday for another brand new episode. Don't forget to also subscribe or follow us wherever you get your podcasts from and to tell all your friends and family that you've gone medieval. If you get a moment, please do drop us a review or rate us anywhere that you listen to your podcasts, including Spotify. It really does help new listeners to find us. If you're enjoying this podcast and looking for a bit more medieval goodness in your life, you can subscribe to our Medieval Mondays newsletter by following the links in the show notes below. Anyway, I'd better let you go. I've been Matt Lewis, and we've just gone medieval with History Hits. Thank you for listening to this episode of Gone Medieval. Please follow this show wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps us out and you'll be doing me a big favour. Don't forget you can also listen to all of these podcasts ad-free and watch hundreds of documentaries when you subscribe at historyhit.com forward slash subscribe. As a special gift, you can also get your first three months for just £1 a month when you use the code MEDIEVAL at checkout.